When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Oliver Lynch, CEO of Bittrex Global Exchange. Welcome to Crypto Daily Briefing. Thank you very much for having me. Real pleasure to be here. Lots to talk about from a regulatory perspective. Uh, lots to talk about from a global business perspective. Of course, the SEC case against Bittrex. But first, let's take a look at price action. Bitcoin right now trading at 26223 uh, A lot of red on the screen. On a 24-hour basis, it's down about uh, three-tenths of 1%, trailing seven days off 3%. Ethereum trading right now at 1,791. It's about flat on a 24-hour basis, on a 24-7-day uh, basis, excuse me. Uh, it is off a little less uh, than 1%. Uh, Oliver, lots to talk about. I've been looking forward to having you on the show to talk about, as I said at the top, uh, what's happening from a global regulatory perspective in the digital asset space, but also what's happening specifically with your shop, Bittrex obviously charged by SEC in April uh, with a series of securities offenses uh, and Bittrex U.S. filing for bankruptcy as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the big picture. Oliver, how do you see everything that's happening right now? Uh -huh. What a question to start off with. Everything that's happening right now, uh, look, it's never a dull day in crypto, right? And that's, uh, that's why it's such an interesting time for the uh, sector as a whole. Um, but let, let's split these things into, into two separate areas of development. I think what we're seeing in the regulatory environment on a global scale is a move towards a two-speed world. On the one hand, you have a series of jurisdictions who are really trying to get to grips with crypto, understand that the most successful regulatory regimes, the most successful uh, ways of handling this new technology is to create a bespoke framework that actually seeks to grapple with what crypto is, how it works, what the risks are, and how to manage them, and say, okay, this is how you do it safely. Right? And so we see regimes like that um, led initially by Bermuda and by Liechtenstein, who are two, still the two countries leading the pack. But we now have the EU with Mika, the UK consultation paper released in February of this year, adopting a similar approach, Varro with Dubai, Hong Kong, the list goes on. And um, what those jurisdictions are saying is, okay, there's something actually quite important here about crypto, about digital assets. This stuff is not going anywhere because people now realize just how useful, just how valuable, uh, and just how productive a part of, of the wider financial markets it can be. So they're saying to themselves, well, okay, how do I get a piece of that action? But how do I do so safely? How do I do so in a way that protects customers, protects markets, and inspires confidence. And as I say, the most 
respected, the most successful regimes are the ones that embrace crypto as crypto and say, right, here is a path to success for what that looks like. The second speed are those jurisdictions that are not doing that at all and are trying to analyze crypto through the lens of traditional finance and are instead saying, you know, let, let's have a look at what this stuff is. Is it kind of like a security, kind of like a commodity or a derivative? The answer is no, right? It's actually none of those things. It's crypto and it's brand new technology. And you're never really going to be able to fit the square peg in that round hole, especially when that round hole was created 90 or 100 years ago. Because the fact is this technology is moving on and is so um, disruptive. I mean, everything's disruptive these days, right? I mean, I stubbed my toe on my bed this morning and someone described it as disruptive. But, but blockchain technology seems to me genuinely to be disruptive. And so trying just to pretend that it's, that it's not, that it's nothing new, and that you can analyze it and regulate it in the same way as you have done traditional securities or traditional commodities, but for, for, for getting on for 100 years, it seems doomed right. to failure. And, and that failure looks like confusion. It's not dramatic failure. It's just a fog of confusion that descends on a situation where the only appropriate response is to say, I just don't know what to do in this scenario. Well, I mean, right. the, you know, you, you sort of sketched this framework out here uh, whereby it's worth remarking that the securities laws here in the United States uh, were formed 90 years ago or thereabouts, 1933, 1934, uh, some small adjustments along the way. Uh, but the principal regulatory framework uh, for the securities architecture of the United States dates back to the 1930s, to the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Uh, clearly, blockchain technology and digital assets were not in mind at the time. And yet there is this question, or at least this thesis that's put forth uh, by Chair Gary Gensler at SEC, that the fundamentals of the protections of investors have not changed. Uh, this is a question that is obviously hotly disputed. As you say, other uh, jurisdictions are trying to come to grips with this uh, in a way that attempts to modernize what's been happening uh, from a securities regulation perspective and to understand and to encompass everything that's happened in digital assets. With that said, uh, the challenge now exists that if you're operating in a jurisdiction such as the United States, uh, those laws are the law of the land uh, and must be followed. Let's talk a little bit about the specifics of what happened with Bittrex and the suit with SEC, just so folks understand what the principal issues at stake are. Uh, I know I spent some time reading the criminal complaint this morning. I am not a lawyer. I know you're a lawyer. You're not a U.S. lawyer, important to point out. Uh, but let's talk about what actually is contained in the complaint, what the allegations are, so people understand what the issues at stake, at least here in the U.S., are. I want to read this. This is actually from the press release. It's a quote uh, by uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Grewal, who is the director of SEC's enforcement division, which sketches out, I think, the principal points. Uh, quote, as laid out in our complaint, Bittrex's business model was based on three things. Circumventing the registration requirements of the federal securities laws, that's number one. Counseling issues of crypto asset securities to do the same by altering their offering materials. And number three, combining multiple market intermediary functions under one roof to maximize profit. For folks who don't understand what that means, they're talking about combining essentially the functions of a broker dealer, an exchange, and a clearing agent that holds assets for customers. Uh, what's your take on that? Do you think that's an appropriate summation of the challenges uh, that SEC has seen with Bittrex's U.S. entity now in bankruptcy? So, uh, 
an all-encompassing question. Let me just pick apart a few of them. Uh, firstly, this is a purely civil complaint that's been brought by the SEC, and you, you referred to it as criminal, and it's not, and there's no allegation of, of criminal. I think I said, I think I said charged. SEC doesn't file criminal complaints in the United States. It, it, the exactly, exactly. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that word. Uh, yeah. The second thing, and, and the really important thing is, um, Bitrix US and Bitrix Global are entirely separate, legally and operationally distinct companies. Right? Bitrix Global never has and never will have any US customers, does not offer its services into the US. And so um, the vast majority of the issues raised in the SEC's case actually do not relate to Bitrix Global. And so I'm not the right person to speak to them because they just don't apply to us. And this is not a case of like a division or a separate department. These are just entirely separate companies. And so I can't speak to the detail of, of you know, the allegations against Bitrix US. What I can say is that they very strongly dispute these and are looking forward to demonstrating, uh, it now looks like in, in a court, that those allegations are, are not correct. And the allegations against Bitrix Global are much more narrow and actually just quite confusing. Because as I say, we do not operate in the US. We don't have a single US customer and never have. So yeah. it's um, important to point out, as as you say, uh, these are allegations made in the SEC's civil complaint. Obviously, uh, they can be adjudicated. This is not a final ruling or decision. These are just mm. uh, the charges, the civil charges from SEC. But could you do us a favor and explain the relationship between Bitrex Global and Bitrex US? Obviously, the same name, separate operating entities. What's the relationship between those two organizations today and historically? So Bitrex US was, was the first to be established. Bitrex US was set up in 2013, 14 in the US serving uh, US customers and, and, and indeed rest of world customers. And as that global footprint got big enough, it stopped making sense to service rest of world out of the US, not least in part because of the lack of regulatory clarity that exists across the board, right? In the same way as if you go to JP Morgan in Europe, you're likely not to be serviced by JP Morgan out of New York, you'll be done out of the London branch. If you've got Citibank or Goldman, you know, it, traditional finance as well often has this divide between the US entity and the global entity. So back in 2018, 19, uh, the global footprint of the exchange had gotten so big that the decision was taken to essentially spin it out into its own separate company. So our, our, the ultimate shareholders are the same people, um, but in terms of legal and operational you know, running of the company, they're just two, two separate exchanges. Um, and in fact, then in 2020, uh, the global footprint of the global company had gotten so big that in addition to being regulated in Liechtenstein to service uh, EU, UK, Swiss uh, customers, we also then went got a, and got ourselves regulated in Bermuda under the pioneering Digital Assets and Business Act to service rest of rest of world um so still not servicing any us customers um but we we operate these two regulated exchanges um to this day hey everyone we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners we'll be right back at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible 
because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So I know there's a lot of nuance and uh, complexity there, but essentially you're saying it's the same shareholders, but different operating entities regulated in different jurisdictions and servicing essentially different customer bases. It, it, that's exactly right. Entirely separate customer bases. That's exactly right. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that's been the setup of Bittrex Global ever since we were established. And so Bittrex Global has no view uh, on the charges against the U.S. entity Bittrex U.S.? Well, look, I mean, the, the, the statements of Bittrex U.S. to defend itself in court uh, echo those of Bittrex Global. And Bittrex Global similarly uh, is, is now in a position, we wish we had been able to engage with the SEC, actually, before they started their, their proceedings. But the very first time that Bittrex Global heard from the SEC in any manner was when they served us with the Wells notice saying that they'd already reached their conclusion. Um, that's extremely unusual. I'm not a U.S. securities lawyer. I'm not a U.S. lawyer at all, but um, I've not met anybody that thinks that that is not an extraordinary uh, first thing to hear from the SEC. We then asked for a reasonable period of time to respond to those allegations because, you know, it's brand new, both as a matter of law and there were some facts and, you know, we wanted to understand what their position was. Uh, and we were essentially told, don't bother, we're just going to we're just going to go straight to court. So we're, we're now in a position where actually there's just confusion layered on confusion, um, both about the rules that, that, that we were supposed to have followed, um, which as, as is well known uh, across the industry, but also increasingly there's awareness uh, in the wider world, these rules lack any kind of transparency, lack any kind of detail as to what, what it is we were even supposed to have done. But there's this additional layer of confusion for, for Bitrix Global uh, which is, you know, we don't operate in the United States. So how are we, how are we drawn into this? And there's just not been the level of engagement with the SEC that you would normally expect where we can say, oh, we understand what they're saying. They're saying A because of B, C because of D. We've just never had that level of engagement. So confusion abounds confusion. So what happens next? How does this get resolved? Is this something uh, that Bittrex US plans to take to trial? Absolutely. Both Bitrix US and Bitrix Global have said, uh, you know, we, we think that we've done nothing wrong. Uh, on the Bitrix Global side, we would have welcomed the opportunity to have that discussion with the SEC. But if they won't have the discussion with us, then we'll make those explanations to a judge. And that's all you can do. And ultimately, you know, as a lawyer, I, I, I spent over a decade um, practicing financial regulatory law out of the UK. Um, and it's some work in the Middle East, and I've, I've engaged with a lot of regulators over over the years. Um, it's very unusual to be in a position where you have to rely on the formal legal process of going through the courts, not to ultimately vindicate your case, which is often regulators will disagree with you, but actually as a first port of call, just to immediately launch into to these kind of proceedings is really very unusual. But if, if it's a judge that we've got to tell our story to, then we'll tell our story to the judge. So let's talk, I know uh, it's an ongoing legal case and you're limited in what you can say, but I want to talk about some of the concepts that underlie this. Uh, essentially, there really are two, I think. It's this question of, what, of, of whether or not digital assets are securities uh, and then you know whether they were listed 
uh, on an exchange uh, in violation of the law and whether or not there was a relationship then uh, between those offering the securities in the exchange. I would think that is one piece. And then the second piece is the, uh, the combination of market intermediary functions. Let's talk a little bit about those two ideas broadly. Uh, in terms of the first, this notion of whether or not digital assets or securities, how do you think about it? It's a question here in the U.S. It's a question uh, more uh, globally abroad. How do you think about that question of what is and is not a security? Obviously, in the U.S., we have the Howey test. But from a broader perspective, what's your view? Well, by far the best answer to that question would be to be able to point to specific detailed rules that are designed with crypto in mind to tell you what is or is not a security or is or is not within the scope of regulatory regime. That is exactly what you have under the TVTG, the Blockchain Act in, Lich uh, Blockchain Act in Liechtenstein. That's exactly what you have under the Digital Assets Business Act in Bermuda. That's what you will have under Mika. is you can say, here is a bright line distinction. And so every single token that is listed on Bitrix Global comes with a formal legal opinion that says, this is not a financial instrument. A financial instrument is the, the term used under EU law uh, that effectively means security. It covers a few other things as well. But it essentially means not a utility token. Every single token that we list comes with that formal legal opinion. So we know exactly what it is that we're listing and exactly how we can be certain that we don't fall under this uh, prohibited list of financial instruments. So what you never have is the unedifying spectacle that we saw of the chair of the SEC sitting before Congress, refusing to answer whether a given token was a security or not. Yeah, like in this case, Ethereum specifically is what you're referring Ethereum's, to. I, I am referring to Ethereum, but, but it's not just Ethereum, because look at the public statements of Bitrix US and other exchanges that are going through similar processes. They have been crying out for clarity. Tell us which ones you think are securities, they say, and they get nothing in response. They get a, a resounding silence in response. That cannot happen when you created a regulatory regime that is fit for purpose. So it's all very well saying you know, we've got the Howey test, um, which again is very old and uh, relates to citrus fruit plantations. And, uh, right. I, I, you know, it's not, uh, FDR was a genius, but I don't think he really saw blockchain coming in the 30s. Um, well, maybe he did, and he's cleverer than we all give him credit. <laughs> but, but probably, <laughs> probably not. Uh, probably listen, I not. I know that this gets confusing. Uh, you mentioned uh, the TVTG, that's the Token and Trusted Technology Services Provider Act uh, in Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein you're, you're is not going to try and get me to say it in German, are you? Because uh, it, it must be about uh, 65 letters long in oh, German. At least. Imagine. At least. <laughs> You know, I know this gets confusing. Uh, Liechtenstein is not a member of the European Union uh, and therefore not included in the Mika Act. But let's talk a little no, bit no, about sorry, this. Sorry, that's not right. Go uh, ahead, please. Liechtenstein is in the European economic area, and so it is within within Mika. So Mika. So the framework of of of, of Mika is not just exclusive to the EU; it's also the European. Co correct. So pretty much all financial legislation in the EU applies to the EEA. Important so, yeah. distinction. Great. It's um, really important, and it means yeah. that what it means that it important, really importantly, is that uh, you know Mika was based on the TBTG, and in, in some cases explicitly just borrowed the concept. So uh, the pioneering uh, aspect of the TBTG or the Blockchain Act 
uh, was what's called the token container model that was right. adopted into Mika. And Mika says, if you are operating under a regime that is recognizably similar to Mika, you'll be grandfathered in. So you get certain additional rights. You basically get credit for having been doing Mika before Mika came along. And, and Lichtenstein counts as that, and, and Bitrix Global will count for those purposes. So when people mm. say, you know, there's X, Y, and Z problems with Mika, or we can't do this, or we can't do that, we're here to say, actually, you can, and we know that because we've been doing it for three years already. So essentially, there's a mechanism that exists uh, to harmonize national regulation uh, with broader European regulation uh, in a way that can uh, essen essentially harmonize those two uh, legislative frameworks. Yeah, up until now, it's been up to member states uh, mm. to decide whether they want to create a framework for, for crypto or not. And so some, like Liechtenstein or Malta or France, have decided to. But the vast majority have not. So there just hasn't been uh, a you know comprehensive regulatory framework for crypto in most of the EU. Some kind. And so for those who have not, for those who have not, then Mika applies. But those who have, okay, this is very interesting, very helpful actually. For those that have, exactly, it's a transition period for those that have. Yeah. They're basically recognizing that they've already got substantive protections in place. Okay, so let me ask you this: under under uh, under Mika and the law in Liechtenstein, this idea of uh, financial instruments, roughly uh, somewhat, I guess, analogous to a security in the United States, what makes something not a financial instrument other than the fact that uh, the issuer says it's not? Well, it, in the EU, it's defined the other way around. So there hmm. is there are comprehensive rules about what are financial instruments, um, and actually, those rules apply and predate Mika. And they're in a separate regulation called MIFIR, Markets and Financial Instruments Regulation, Markets right. in Financial Instruments. And so there's a whole load of detail telling you what constitutes a financial instrument. Um, and you can go to you know, any EU lawyer. As I say, when I was in, in private practice at a law firm, we would regularly produce opinions and you do a deep dive into, in the case of crypto, you do a deep dive into the token, into the token team, the white paper, how it operates in practice. You know, there are lots of criteria and lots of checks that you do. And you can say with certainty, this is a financial instrument or this is not a financial instrument. So, you know, that, that, that test has existed for a while and now leveraging the advantage of that in the crypto sphere, you say, well, if it's not a financial instrument and it's not e-money, which is a separate regime, again, actually quite weird and confusing and most lawyers don't particularly like e-money but you know it's there um if you say it's not either of those two things then it's what what the tbtg tbtg will call a utility token which mm. is sort of everything else category hey everyone we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners we'll be right back to the real vision crypto daily briefing Well, let me ask you this more generally. I know that uh, obviously these securities laws get immensely complicated, particularly as we talk across multiple jurisdictions here. But the spirit of securities laws, uh, we talk about how much the technology has changed since the 1930s, but the spirit of securities laws effectively is to protect investors uh, and the general public from deceptive practices to facilitate fair, fair markets and hopefully to aid in capital formation. 
as well on the opposite side of the ledger. Uh, talk a little bit about investor protection, some of the risks. God knows in our space, we've seen our share of fraud, uh, unscrupulous actors, rug pulls as they're known in the space. Uh, talk a little bit about how you think the protections for that are served or not served uh, under Mika and TVTG. Absolutely. And, and, you know, those things are critical. They're absolutely crucial. And the important thing to remember is that under the way it works in, in Liechtenstein and in Bermuda and under the EU MECA rules, if you are a utility token, or you're not a security, that in no sense means that you're in a free-for-all. That doesn't mean you can do whatever the hell you want. Quite the opposite. Actually, that then shoves you into the robust regulatory framework for crypto that has been designed precisely to ensure that within the context of crypto, there is transparency and fairness in markets. There are robust standards and principles that apply to service providers. Being a TBTG regulated exchange is in many cases, it, it can even be more robust than being a traditional markets exchange because your obligations are tailored to crypto but the principles underpinning them are just as robust, are just as forceful. And the supervisory oversight, the enforcement uh, and the, the, the constant um, oversight is tailored to crypto, so fit for purpose, but no less intense for it. So it, it's important not to get the idea, which does exist in the US, right? And it does exist wherever there aren't actual fit for purpose regimes, that if you are not falling within the definition of security or financial instrument, then like, it's a free fraud and you, you subject yourself to, to the worst elements of society. That's precisely the point. That's why we need robust, fit for purpose uh, regulation for crypto, because we say, well, these things aren't financial instruments, but people are still exposed to them. We still want fair markets. We still want transparency. We still want to avoid market abuse. We still want to avoid fraud and, and manipulation of all kinds. How do you do that? Well, go look at the TBTG. Go look at the Dabber in Bermuda. Go look at Mika. That tells you how to do that. So let's talk about a different aspect of this and probably the one that's gotten less attention uh, of the two that I was talking about. The securities aspect of this, I think, is pretty well covered. The other interesting point, uh, I think, from uh, the complaint from SEC is this idea that of the combination of uh, multiple market intermediary functions, it's important to point out uh, that this complaint was filed by SEC less than six months after the collapse of FTX. It is interesting to think about the crypto ecosystem. I'm someone who spent some time in banking myself. Uh, the idea that functions like broker dealers, exchanges, and clearing agents are segregated uh, is a is a given in the traditional financial services space. And one of the challenges that we saw uh, in the FTX collapse was the fact that those multiple functions were housed under a single uh, entity or a series of related entities, uh, Alameda and FTX specifically. What are the uh, your understanding of the way that works in crypto and what are the risks? Uh, and, and I know you're not going to be able to speak in detail specifically to the SEC's uh, allegations here, but this idea that in crypto, you effectively have multiple entities sort of serving or single entities solving multiple entity purposes uh, under the regime. It does seem as though it is a fragility in the system at very least. Well, I do have to be a little bit careful, as you say, uh, being a bit of a boring lawyer, two things. One, that aspect of the allegation is not made against BitTrix Global. Um, so I yes. have no direct knowledge and or can't speak to it. And second, as you say, this is an ongoing case and 
you don't want to get into the details too much of it. But what is the case is that, that Bittrex US, Bittrex Global, uh, neither of them ever had an affiliated kind of Alameda equivalent. We never had a uh, someone operating a fund or operating in, in that sense. So the allegation there is is very different uh, from, from, from FTS. The facts are just very different. But speaking more broadly about, about the issue, right? So it, it doesn't apply to Pitrex at all, but it does apply in the industry more generally. And I think one of the things that people are particularly concerned about in the FTX case, and again, being a bit cautious because we still don't know all the facts on the FTX thing, is this relationship between FTX and, and Alameda. Um, and I think it is important to note that it's only by establishing rules in the industry to separate out those functions that you can gain that level of control. So I think there's no problem in theory with having reasonably complex uh, so corporate structures. So long as you're transparent with people, look at it. If you, if you go and have a look at the structure chart of a bank, there are lots of entities all doing different things. I think what's lacking and what seems to have been lacking in FTX is you thought you were facing one entity only to find out sometime later, in this case, after her collapse, that you were never facing that entity to begin with. You were facing some unregulated, opaque entity that wasn't doing what you thought it was doing in the way you thought you were doing it, uh, and you're left with, with nothing. So I think the, the important thing is if people know if they are transacting with, with Bitrix Global in Liechtenstein or Bitrix Global in Bermuda, that's who they're getting. And if you look up that name on the, on the register of regulated entities, that is precisely the same entity that you're, you're dealing with. I think what, what seems to have happened in, in some very high profile cases is there was a quote unquote regulated entity that was touted and said, look how, look how magnificent we are for having gone and got this regulation or this regulatory status. But actually it was just a trophy to stick in a trophy cabinet and never look at again because they didn't want to put in the hard yards of actually operating that entity to provide services to customers. And the fact is, it's really difficult. Being regulated requires a lot of time, effort, and frankly, money to do things like to do compliance properly, uh, to have systems and procedures in place, to have the controls uh, and, and corporate controls that really do seem to have been lacking in, in cases like FTX. So I think what, we're, what we need to move away from is this discussion that we seem to have in 2022, which is, oh, I've got 486 regulatory statuses. Oh, only 486, I've got 512. And it's, it's kind of it's a pathetic showboating. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. It's about saying, actually, you say you're regulated, but are you really? How are you regulated? Where are you regulated? What standards are you held to? And most importantly of all, how does that mean that markets are protected? And how does that mean that people are protected? So we've got some questions coming in from the Real Vision audience. This is an interesting one from Paul on the Real Vision website. How does Oliver think this will end and when will it end? What's the likely outcome? And then he says, which I think is really interesting for Bittrex and for the U.S. more widely. We haven't talked about the public policy implications of this, uh, but that's implicit in his question as well. How do you think this is going to end? <laughs> I long stopped making predictions about uh, about crypto industry at the moment. I I think that the end goal needs to be that in five, 10 years time, whatever it is, crypto is actually just part of the wider financial sector. You know, I, I, I look forward to the day where, yeah, there'll be specialists in crypto, just like there are specialists in 
equity and specialists in debt and specialists in derivatives. And it would just be another category in the wider financial sector. Um, I think that's the end goal. And I think the only way we get there is by creating a regulatory regime based on the same principles. And actually, this is what IOSCO came out and said just yesterday or the day before, the principles underpinning those regulations need to be the same, need to be just as robust as in traditional finance. And that would allow crypto, that would allow digital assets in general to take their place at the, at the grown-ups table. And at the moment, then they're still playing around at the kids' table. Yeah. Um, next question comes to us from Roger on the Real Vision website. Speaking more broadly, does Oliver believe that market manipulation occurs on exchanges in crypto trading? I think all exchanges from traditional finance exchanges, stock exchanges, dark pools, crypto exchanges, always have to be on the lookout for market manipulation um, and always have to have a, a robust program for identifying and addressing very quickly uh, that, that kind of manipulative behavior. Um, so I, I think it's a, a, a duty incumbent upon anyone providing exchange services to adhere to the most robust policies of transparency, pre and post trade disclosure requirements, uh, avoiding market manipulation, avoiding spoofing, avoiding wash trading. Yeah, without that, yeah, there's, there's no way that crypto can, can look itself in the mirror and say we're every bit as good as a, uh, a stock exchange. Um, and so I, I think there are, there, there is a, not just legal, but moral imperative if you're going to operate an exchange to, to have a proper program for the detection of, of market abusive behavior. Oliver, that's a very fair and honest assessment. How do you think we get there? By imposing standards on exchanges. I, I think the idea that, um, that people are going to do it themselves or that, uh, you know, by, by generosity of heart, people are going to. And, and, and to be clear, Bitrix Global always has, right? We voluntarily subjected ourselves to being regulated in two of the most robust regimes in the world, but the vast majority of exchanges and participants simply won't do that. So what you get is what's, what's called regulatory arbitrage, which is seeking jurisdictions where you can basically get away with it. So we need to eliminate that. We need to, things like the IOSCO report are a good first step in saying, actually, there needs to be minimum standards minimum principles to apply across the board wherever in the world you go. Now that, that already exists. If I buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange or in London or in Hong Kong or in Tokyo, there'll be different rules, national rules and, and ways to implement it. But the basic service that you're getting is recognizably the same. The basic protections that you have are recognizably the same. That is good because that means that there's no opportunity to engage in regulatory arbitrage and there's no opportunity for the most vulnerable people to be excluded. We need to get to that stage in crypto and we need to get there really fast. Oliver, I want to thank you for joining us. A very deep conversation here. We really hashed through the core issues that are affecting the space from a regulatory perspective, uh, as well as some of the challenges in terms of the functional mechanics of these exchanges. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with. I think the most important thing to take away from this is where I started at the beginning. This two-speed world of you know, the part of the world, the segment of the world that's embracing crypto and the segment of the world that is stuck behind cannot be sustained. The fact is crypto operating online means that national borders um, don't get respected as much as they should. The idea of where an exchange is located is, is, is 
difficult to ascertain at the best of times. What we need is those of us in the industry that care about crypto, that want to see it succeed, that want to see it grow up, that want to see it become respectable, need to be advocating for a proper regulatory framework wherever that is located. And the days of hoping that, that you can get on by without engaging with regulators, and if you don't make too much noise, they will ignore you, they're gone. The days of hoping that you can do it like something out of the Wild West and be unregulated and and uh, and, and plow your wares and, and, and do things however you see fit, those days are over and uh, none too soon. Excellent conversation, Oliver. I hope you come back and join us again. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free, of course, at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode of Asking for a Friend. Our own Nico and Mike Demarius from Rainbow will walk through using decentralized exchanges such as Uniswap. Make sure to join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Eastern time, excuse me, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, and 5 p.m. London. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great afternoon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.